Good morning. This is the wisdom from God. Could we see it, hear it, speak it, and understand it? All from Proverbs. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye and then on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your hearts. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an, as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag that is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim she has laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. What is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? The righteous who walk in his integrity. Blessed are his children after him. And then charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This is God's word. If we haven't met yet, my name is Brian. It's good to see everybody today. Appreciate your patience with me. I uh, lost my voice earlier this week and I'm still Still recovering from that. I've got my tea here. I'm just gonna pour a little bit of it. Just to, and just imagine that this is what it would be like if, if your pastor were Don Corleone. Uh, Mr. Zengana, you disrespect me very much. You disappoint me, Chevy. You disappoint me. Uh, let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, the words of my mouth uh, would be glorifying to you, uh, that the meditation of our hearts would please you. Uh, we know that you are our rock and our redeemer. We cannot save ourselves, nor can love, as powerful as it is, save us from death. Uh, teach us about your special love that can save us. Amen. We are taking a look at the Proverbs, uh, trying to gain wisdom for discipling, parenting, teaching, raising up the next generation. We need a lot of wisdom to do that. So we're looking at that. We're gonna conclude the series next week. But before we do that, uh, we had to address, uh, I just felt like we had to address this topic before we close the series. Of all the gifts that I received when I graduated high school, you know, uh, money and clothes 
and, I don't know, you know, music CDs. If you're under 20, there were these little shiny discs, and you would pop them in a box and listen to music on them. All these cool gifts. The, the gift I didn't quite know what to make of was a gift that my piano teacher had given me. I had been with her for over a decade. Uh, she was a Christian. She gave me a gift. And I, I did not know what to make of it. It was a book about finding the right spouse. I was 18 years old, and I thought to myself, what a lame gift. What, like, how, how irrelevant, like, what am I gonna do with this? And from a musician of all people, finding the right spouse. I, you know, after 25 years of marriage, six children, all sorts of adversity and trials and struggles and, and ministry, I think that was one of the wisest gifts anyone ever gave me. How wise and insightful she was. The Proverbs offer wisdom through good parenting for impressionable youth. Now remember, we talked about how the Proverbs describe, and I'm not sure why I can't advance slides. Do you guys have the, Rebecca, do you guys have the, um, uh, I can't advance the slides. You guys have the, um, ah, look at that. Now let me try it on my own. Yeah, it's not working. Can you all in the back figure out why? I think the receiver's probably not plugged into the computer. But thanks, Rebecca. Until it works, I'll just say next slide, please. We talked about how the Proverbs identify the simple, right? The, our youth, our young people are, from the Proverbs perspective, impressionable. Um, naive about the ways of the world, open to whatever influence is the loudest and the most persuasive, maybe even the most attractive and apparently promising. And good parenting uh, will help children make good choices, especially about the most intimate of all human relationships, marriage. Now, the ancient Jews warned their children about things like adultery and promiscuity. Uh, and then the early church did the same thing. And the, the warnings were so strong in the scriptures because this stuff destroyed families. It ruined communities. It could even destroy somebody's body and their very soul. Now, our children today face a myriad of threats and confusion about relationships, about sex, from traditional sexual problems such as lust and pornography, pornography, abuse, promiscuity, but now new confusion about their very gender and a sense of their God-given identity. And our children have to navigate all of that while trying to pursue a mate and a spouse and a family of their own. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, Proverbs 20 tells us. Many people proclaim to be loving and to know what love is and to promise love to one another. But a faithful man, who can find? A faithful, consistent person, who can find? The righteous who walks in his integrity Blessed are his children after him. 
the wise cared about, if I can use the expression, tilling fertile soil for the flourishing of future generations. And if you're a parent or a care provider, I want you to imagine tilling fertile soil for their future. Wise parents cultivate a loving, honest, safe household, an environment so that their children can understand and pursue wise relationships. And so today, we're going to talk about the nature and the cultivation and the fulfillment of relationships while we live in this world. We're going to talk about the nature of intimate relationships as God has defined them in his word and as nature itself reveals. We're also going to talk about how to cultivate these types of relationships first in your home uh, so that you, you kind of give your kids a fighting chance uh, to, to your best of ability. You can't control every aspect of their lives, but you can help. Uh, how can you cultivate in your own home a healthy soil, a fertile soil for their future relationships? And then finally, the fulfillment, the fulfillment of intimate relationships, the fulfillment that God provides himself imaged in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the nature, the cultivation, and the fulfillment of relationships for the next generation. So the nature of intimate relationships is framed within marriage in the scriptures. Moses, Jesus, and Paul. Now, if you look at all of scripture, all of the Bible, and you look at the themes in the Bible, you, you could argue that they are laid out by those three individuals, Moses, Jesus, and the apostle Paul. And all three of them directly address God's design for marriage. You've heard people say, well, you know, it's very confusing to understand a biblical ethic for marriage and human sexuality. It's actually not. There's a lot in there that we have to sift through, but if Jesus and Moses and Paul all said the same thing, then wow, like that is something we can hold on to and, and be confident that we understand the biblical ethic and model for intimate relationships. And so we find in Genesis chapter one, Moses says that in the image of God, humanity was created. But more specifically, we were created in God's image as male and female. Now why male and female? Why not male and male? Why not male and canine? or male and bovine? Uh, I'm serious, it's an honest question. This is the reason. In Genesis 2, we are told that the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone, and I will make him a helper fit for him. That expression, helper fit for him, it's not, it doesn't connote subservience or inferiority. It has to do with compatibility. And so God's design for marriage was companionship. It says later in Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united. It says shall cling to, or the, in the old English it was cleave. It means to stick to one another. Leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And Moses said the two shall become one flesh. 
You see that? One flesh, physically, emotionally, sexually, legally, two people of the opposite sex, two distinct human beings of the opposite sex become one new person. One new family, one marriage. This is like another relationship. Can you think of what it is? It's like the Trinity. Three distinct persons, one God. You see, marriage, as the Bible defines it, as one man and one woman covenanting with each other, devoting themselves to one another in every single way in life, becoming one new flesh, marriage as no other relationship reflects the nature of God himself. And so God takes it seriously, and so should we. The Proverbs put a huge emphasis on marriage. Have you noticed that? Uh, We only read a very small portion of all uh, the Proverbs on marriage and intimate relationships. It's because all of human existence stems from marriage. And so the wise did not want to neglect it in their treatment of wisdom for impressionable young people. The Dutch theologian and, frankly, uh, Prime Minister, Abraham Kuyper was a Dutch theologian who became the Prime Minister of the Netherlands. And over 120 years ago, Abraham Kuyper said this, from the duality of man and woman, marriage arises. From the original existence of one man and one woman, monogamy comes forth. Uh, Kids, that means one man and one woman together. Uh, You know, not like having a ton of wives or a ton of husbands. He goes on to say that children exist by reason of the innate power, meaning natural power, of reproduction. Now, why am I quoting this? Because it just looks like Kuiper was stating the obvious, and that's the point. He's stating the obvious. If you are confused about what is marriage and what is the meaning of marriage, our own biology itself reveals a design for what it is and what it is for. And Kuiper went on to say that marriage for a vast majority of the human race has been and remains the foundation of human society. And I would put it to you that no sustainable prosperity for a society can exist without this form of marriage being allowed to prosper. But none of us have seen a perfect marriage. None of us have lived a perfect marriage, and many of us have seen quite imperfect marriages and maybe even have lived through them or have grown up seeing them ourselves. So we want to be gentle and we want to be honest and direct about these issues. So the cultivation of relationships in your home, okay, will will help you prepare your children for cultivating healthy relationships one day in their home. Healthy marriages cannot begin the day somebody says, I do. In a sense, uh, there has to be a lot of cultivation that takes place before two people even meet each other. Parenting helps kids choose between wisdom and foolishness in relationships. That's what we've talked about. Wisdom is the ability to make the right choice a choice that glorifies our creator. 
And when this comes to relationship and intimacy, parents are trying to cultivate an environment where a child can grow up and have the ability to make wise decisions about relationships. So for instance, uh, of the many chapters that we see in Proverbs that address this, a, a big one is chapter seven, which begins this way, my son, keep my commandments and live. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman. And he talks about the forbidden woman, the adulterous woman, and he says she has smooth words. She has persuasive speech. And I hope you will understand uh, that it is not simply a literal thing. These are, this is figurative language. The Proverbs personify wisdom and folly as women. We meet we meet woman wisdom and we meet woman folly. And one of them, you are supposed to treat like a beloved sister, the parent says. Treat woman wisdom like your own sister. Draw close to her and love her. The other woman, however, the Proverbs say, you should avoid at all costs, no matter how attractive it may seem, no, how, no matter how persuasive the idea may sound avoid at all costs. You see, these smooth words that, that woman folly has, they are characteristic of what the world teaches young people is intimacy. What the world teaches young people about freedom and happiness that they will have if they follow her. And so wise parents guide impressionable young people on the types of relationships that they should value and seek and keep once they find them. For instance, Proverbs 19.22, what is desirable is a man who has steadfast love. What's desired in a man is steadfast love. That is the famous Hebrew word for covenant love. It's the kind of love that God commits to his people and goes to every expense and threat to preserve. It is a tenacious, uh, always forgiven, always forgiving, never-ending love. That is what is desired in a man. Steadfast love and a poor man is better than a liar. Young ladies, a faithful man, a consistent man, is better than a successful guy who lies to you. We go on, Proverbs 31. Charm is deceitful. This is the famous one. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Another way of putting that is charm can lie and hide deeper problems. And beauty is like a breath. It won't last. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Young men, the most attractive thing in a woman that will never age and as a matter of fact will brighten and increase and further beautify with age is her love for God. And so Kathleen Nielsen, in her commentary on the Proverbs, says of this woman, of the, of, the, of the virtuous woman who fears the Lord in Proverbs 31, 
She is walking the path of righteousness that keeps getting brighter until the full day. She found the beginning of wisdom and is following it to the end. What's the beginning of wisdom? We looked at this in the very beginning of the series. It's the fear of the Lord. She's found it and she's pursuing it. And as she pursues it, her light gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And C.S. Lewis says in his famous book, The Great Divorce, that when this woman gets to heaven, to behold her is absolutely magnificent. She holds herself with such honor and dignity and beauty because of the way she loved and the righteous life she lived on this earth. So if you are a parent, cultivate an attitude in your home that welcomes honest questions from your children, even the difficult ones and the awkward ones and the ones that you may not have the perfect answer for in the moment. Welcome the questions and the doubts and the concerns, but respond to them with truth and with love, especially if your kids are still young. If your kids are very young right now, or if you're raising kids, or if, you, if, if you're involved in a kid's life and realize that the people who are supposed to be raising them really aren't, and, and you're trying to have a positive impact on this person, right? So apply this to all of yourselves. Help your future self right now by tilling good soil. Give yourself a break five years from now, 10 years from now, by tilling good soil right now. Provide a loving, honest, safe household where these issues are discussed in the open, appropriately but honestly. Because in the future, your kids are gonna come to you with their concerns and with their questions and with their doubts and maybe even with their own confessions of sin. Because you have been cultivating all along an open dialogue about these issues so that they will now trust you. You don't build trust when your kid comes home at the age of 14 and you're very worried about their relationships. You build trust when they're four. So that when they're 14, they know they can come to you and you're not gonna absolutely lose it and you're not gonna completely disown them. And you're not gonna make them walk away in shame, feeling awkward and dirty about themselves. You begin developing that soil when they're young. So <laughs> here's an example, and, and I can't take the credit for this, I think it was the grace of God. And it was awkward and, and confusing at first. One of the neighborhood kids uh, on the school bus, because our, our kids have all been public schooled, and uh, one of the kid, an older kid on the school bus kept talking to my oldest son about sex. On the bus, this would come up on a regular basis like once a week. This kid was a, two years older than my son, and this was our first son, so you know, this was all new for us. He's in third grade, and he comes home, and he'd, he'd tell me all of this information that he was getting on the bus, and there were all these half-truths about what it was and how it works. And, and so I said, listen, buddy, I'll tell you what. Every time he tells you about this, you come and tell me because he doesn't know the half of it. I know way more about this stuff than he does. So the next time he tells you about this stuff, I want you to tell me and I'll tell you whether he's right or not. And so 
this began a dialogue because it was like once a week, he'd come home with the, the next big shocker of information that the kid on the bus would tell him about. And we just had this dialogue and, and you know, and it helped us, it, it gave us a little bit of control over the dialogue and the trajectory of what he was learning that we could not help. You can't protect them from everything. And, and so we did that, an honest dialogue began for months and then for years until one of his friends from church told him the full truth about sex. And by the way, it was a homeschool kid. <laughs> you know, the cost, the cost for neglecting these issues is really steep. The stakes are high. The cost is great for avoiding these conversations with our children or even for forcing them on our children when they are not ready. And I want to talk about, regarding these issues, legalism and permissiveness. It's more complicated than this, but I think we'll get closer to understanding where we struggle as parents and how our children will struggle if we try and get a handle on legalism and, and um, uh, permissiveness as, as the two extremes that we want to stay away from. In our legalistic thinking, we treat sex like it's something wrong and bad and dirty. Like it's something to avoid and to hide from. And so if that is the approach to these things in your home, then your children will probably learn shame from these things. They would develop a sense of shame about how God has made them and who they truly are. And they will seek to hide from you their honest questions and their struggles. On the other hand, in our permissiveness, we treat sex not as a bad thing, but as an idol. We worship sex as if it were a God to be obeyed and to be appeased. Whatever the culture says is right. Whatever the pressure is in the public school system, whatever the neighborhood kids are saying, whatever Hollywood and social media and the gatekeepers of our society are saying, we must appease them and bow down to them. Right? So we're not treating it as a bad, ugly thing that we're trying to hide from. We're saying it's the end of all things. It's the measure of life and freedom itself and whatever it demands, we will give. And you know, your children will develop, if that is your attitude, they will develop an arrogance about their sexuality and they will confuse self-expression for fulfillment. They will think that by bowing to the idol of self-expression, they are living the most fulfilled, happiest version of who they were designed to be. So legalism creates a fear of true intimacy but permissiveness creates a false sense of intimacy. Try and figure out what your own parents developed in you and forgive them for it. And try and cultivate something for your own children that will allow them to trust you when they need to trust you the most. And we will all fail, but there is a point where I can say, this is where it stops. This generation, me and my children, this is where we begin anew. 
Because the fulfillment of relationships is what God is doing among us. We are not alone in this. We have, as Chrissy said to the kids this morning, you have the word of God and you have the spirit of God and you have the people of God to help guide you in this. This is why we are covenantal. You wonder why we baptize infants is because we believe that we are raising our children as a community and that we are vowing to one another that we are not raising our children alone. God is in the business of healing broken relationships. Think of the prodigal son, maybe the most famous parable Jesus ever spoke. If you don't know it, read Luke chapter 15. And Jesus told the story of this prodigal son and his older brother and their father and how God restores broken relationships. And I want you to think of the father as a parent. Think about this. Think of how the father dealt with his younger son who rejected him and ran away and lived a promiscuous life. He did not seek to control his son's impulses. There was a sense in which he had to give his son up. But when his son rebelled and then repented, he was ready and eager and overjoyed to welcome him home. I think that conversation when he saw his son far off coming home and he ran out to be with his son and he rejoiced and he threw his a party, I wonder how the son would have responded to that if he sent his son out in legalism and rejection. But then think of those two boys, the older son and the younger son. The younger son in his permissive attitude rejected his father's true intimacy. Looking for the intimacy of the world, he rejected his father's intimacy. But think about the older son. In his legalism, he was afraid of the father's intimacy. He didn't even want to come into the house. When they were having a party, your brother came home. He didn't even want to come in. Whatever he was doing, whatever his relationship with his father, it was a false sense of security. And so the older son was afraid and the younger son was permissive, but the father reached out to both of them in their own way and tried to mend the relationship. And so Jesus Christ taught us there what the fulfillment of true intimacy looks like. And he inspired it in the Apostle Paul, who said, love is patient. It is kind. It does not envy. It doesn't boast. It's not prideful or rude. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not, it's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. If a relationship that you are in, or a marriage, or an internal desire, or longing, or a preference, or a lifestyle cannot identify with this definition of love, 
my friend, you are probably closer to folly than to wisdom. And it could cost you your life, as the Proverbs said. But there is a lover, there is a life mate, and he calls himself the bridegroom who fulfilled love because he defined love himself and called himself love. And this love, the love of Jesus Christ, if you embrace it, if you allow it to redefine who you are and how you understand love and intimacy and what your ambitions are and what your plans are and desires are for it, if you will let him who calls himself love become your guide and become your God and become your source of wisdom, as Huey Lewis once said, it might just save your life. Wise parents cultivate an environment that presents their children with a definition of love that ultimately at the end of the day describes who Jesus is. What a relief to know that Jesus and how he exemplified love and how he defines love in his word actually liberates us from the world's qualifications for the ideal relationship. When we look at our children and what they will become, it's easy to pour the weight of the world upon yourself, saying every word, every word that I speak could destroy my child for life. If I discipline them in the wrong way, if I let them see the wrong movie, if I say something the wrong way, if I respond to that friend or that girlfriend or that boyfriend in the wrong way, I'm gonna damage them for life. You need to stop thinking that way. Yes, you have a lot of power. You really could mess up your kids. It's true. But you don't have that much power. You don't have the kind of power that Jesus has. Jesus, whose grace covers a multitude of your sins as a parent and as a grandparent, as a teacher and a disciple maker or a brother or a sister. What a relief to know that we can point our children not to our definition of whom they should marry, but to Christ's definition of what intimacy in relationships look like. Don't get down on yourself. Become an adult. See what the word of God says. Ask for guidance. Ask for good reading. Talk to somebody you trust about it and begin to provide for your children a foundation for future conversations where they will learn to trust you and you will learn the balance between falling into the pitfalls of legalism and permissiveness. Wise parents cultivate a loving and honest and safe environment for their children to understand and pursue healthy relationships. So cultivate an attitude about relationships and about sex that welcomes questions and doubts and struggles, but respond to those with wisdom that points your children to a Savior who calls himself love. Let's pray. Our God, thank you that you in your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the nature of your creation itself,
have taught us the light and the meaning of marriage and love.